welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Hello and welcome to High Energy Health. My name is Dawson Church and I just love sharing with you each week on the show because there are so many wonderful, hopeful strategies and answers that are coming from science nowadays about how we can improve ourselves and improve our worlds. I had a striking conversation with a friend of mine the other day, and we've known each other for 50 years, and he was saying that he's so grateful for the tools and techniques we have now that shift the level of suffering that we have. And he's personally used various teachings, like he's been a meditator for quite a while. He is entering states of self-transcendence, reading about the whole the whole science of self-transcendence. He is using EFT, acupressure tapping, and a whole group of holistic therapies. And he was saying that they made his life so dramatically better. And then he said, you know, Dawson, my parents didn't have these things. They were never exposed to meditation. They were never exposed to all of these tools that have shaped my life and my sense of well-being. They just suffered. And I've been thinking long and hard about that statement for a while now that so many people in previous generations just suffered. I was thinking about my ancestors going back, say, you know, 200 years to England and then back to medieval England and back to pre-Roman England. And they had very much the same lifestyle for a long time. I mean, the feudal overlord might change, but they lived very similar lives, the peasant of 1100 and the peasant of 1100 BC. And then in the last while, all kinds of things have changed in the last few hundred years. And we have so much better lives now. And now in the last, as psychology has advanced, we have so many amazing tools. Like there are now high resolution MRIs that can study things like the firing of an individual neuron or an individual group of neurons can study things like the buildup of beta amyloid plaques, which are the primary marker of Alzheimer's disease. And research is showing now that when we are able to look into the brain in that way, we can trace the various factors that are adding to those beta amyloid plaques or that are diminishing those beta amyloid plaques. We can start to then work on treatments and we can work on strategies that will keep our brains young and healthy. Your brain starts to shrink significantly after about the age of 35, 40. And by the age of 80, people's brains have shrunk by around a third. That's a lot. And an Alzheimer's brain will have shrunk by two-thirds at that time. So we look at age-matched people with Alzheimer's and without Alzheimer's at around the age of 65, the Alzheimer's patient's brain will be 30% the size of the healthy brain. So brain shrinkage and brain deterioration is something you really want to focus on now because the signs of it are apparent when we use SPET scans, PET scans, and these new high-resolution MRIs. That damage to the brain and that activity in the brain is detectable now 30, 40 years before there are any symptoms of Alzheimer's. And so with SPECT scans, Researchers can take a look at your brain activity when you're 25 or 35 or 40 and see the signs of Alzheimer's 
30 years before there are any symptoms. And so there are all kinds of things we can do to keep our brains young, keep our brains healthy, keep our brains active. One of those is meditation. In recent studies, researchers have found that in meditators, the corpus callosum that connects the left and right hemispheres, which is responsible for the two talking to each other. So the more neurons you have, the more synapses you have in your corpus callosum, the more crosstalk there is between the two hemispheres. And then the more effectively you're able to integrate information from both left and right hemisphere. In meditators, that part of the brain grows significantly over time. And eventually you have a much larger and more efficient signaling corpus callosum than you otherwise would have. You just get more integrated and more creative and smarter. Albert Einstein, his brain was not very different from other people, other men of his age. But his corpus callosum was enormous. He had this ability to integrate information from both sides of the brain. And you see that in people who are meditating. Another study that in 2020, remarkable study showed that in people who have Alzheimer's, they measured the level of Alzheimer's. And they found that when people had Alzheimer's, there was a significantly higher level of, of course, these beta amyloid and tau plaques in the brain, but that the single biggest factor driving the accumulation of those Alzheimer's plaques was not lifestyle, wasn't even genes, because there's one gene that strongly predisposes you to Alzheimer's. That's the APOE gene. But it wasn't the APOE gene that was the biggest factor. It wasn't lifestyle, wasn't diet. It was one thing that stood out as the single biggest contributor in the accumulation of those Alzheimer's plaques. And that was what they call RNT. RNT stands for repetitive negative thinking. Thought, the way people thought, their degree of optimism, pessimism, the, the explanatory framework for the world was literally correlated with the deposit of Alzheimer's plaques in their brains. And the effect scaled. The more repetitive negative thinking, the more Alzheimer's plaques. So there are things you can do. You can release that repetitive negative thinking through all of these strategies my friend was talking about. And you can have a much more hopeful and healthy life and a very different brain if you use those things. I urge you to make high energy health the show part of your life, part of your routine. Take notes during each show. Record things you can commit to, both for your health and for planetary health. Because what you do and say and think right now is making a huge difference for life downstream. So I'm grateful you're here. You being here is part of your commitment to your own well-being. And I encourage you to fill your life with positive messages, positive media, and positive inputs like this show. So I'm glad you're here. And please join me each week for the next episode. I'm so excited to introduce our guest today. His name is Thomas Legrand, and he works in the field of sustainability for UN agencies, for private companies, and for non-governmental organizations. His focus is on forest conservation, climate change, sustainable finance, and organizational transformation. And a lot of this was driven at an early age by an encounter at the age of 23 with native spirituality in Mexico, far from his native France in Mexico, where he learned traditional spirituality and then has exposed himself to many of those traditions. He now lives with his wife and two young daughters near Plum Village, the monastery where Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh established in the south of France. His spiritual search, his thought as a social scientist, as a professional experience, have had him think deeply about humanity's ongoing transition and development, sustainable development in politics, in finance, and everything else we have to manage if we're to thrive as a species on the planet. Thomas, it is a Huge pleasure. <laughs> 
to welcome you to the show. Thank you, Dawson. That's all my pleasure to be with you. Uh, yeah, so we'll get deep into your new book, The Politics of Being. But I wanted to just go back to that encounter at the age of 23 with indigenous spirituality and that the way that shaped your your subsequent thought and development. What happened then? Thank you for this starting question. Uh, that was really a purification point in my life, which led me to really reprioritize what I'm here for. And that was thanks to a, a profound reconnection with uh, Mother Earth and, and through it uh, with myself, I would say. And, which led me to later on work on uh, do a PhD in ecological economics and later work on nature conservation and in particular forest uh, conservation, as I felt really deeply connected in particular to, to the forest. So this led really to put my path of transformation as a priority in my life and led me to really look at things in a very different way. And at some point, as I was also working with UN agencies and how to, to deal with this environmental crisis, I was aware that, you know, this inner change I was experiencing, if it could be more widespread, it would obviously make a lot of difference in our collective lives also. So as I was working on policies, etc., I started to wonder how we could organize society in a way that supports this kind of human man flourishing. And that's why I wrote this book. It took me 10 years. Politics of Being, <laughs> Wisdom and Science for a New Development Paradigm. So was the one like catalytic experience that really shifted you or the series of experiences of the time? There has been different ones. But yeah, in, in the book, for example, I mentioned one was very powerful. I was with uh, in an indigenous community in the, the mountain of uh, central Mexico. And, and I was looking to the other side of a big canyon. I was alone, uh, really in this vast, deserted place. Uh, well, on the other side, there was a forest and I was really connecting to it. And at some point, I experienced as if I was into the forest on the other side. So it felt like there was like, I could say probably an energetic opening for me that somehow my energy was feeling part of the forest as if I was on the other side. And, you know, there was this really this, yeah, unity feeling of, you know, being one with the forest. And I think that was the start of my call to work for the forest as it was to me embodying, you know, this connection to the earth. Yeah, the Sufis talk about having glimpses of heaven, and they say everyone has glimpses of heaven, and those glimpses of heaven are things like maybe you have the glimpse of heaven when you're holding a newborn baby, but they particularly emphasize things like nature, like watching a sunset, hearing beautiful music, walking in the forest, being barefoot on the beach. Any one of those things can give us those glimpses. And then in Sufi, traditional Sufi thought, we then can pursue those glimpses and make them part of our lives. So when you have a profound experience like you had being one with the forest, it changes you and you're a different person after that. Yes, definitely. I think it, I would say, like, feels like a contact with my soul. I would say I, I discovered as a soul, I'm very connected to, to the forest. So I feel like of this, this kind of dreams when you get in touch with your true nature, connected with, with everything. I had a couple of these experiences. It really, uh, it, I felt like uh, as a call, no, as a call to, to do something also for, for the forest. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, there is this whole way we've been approaching development and approaching every part of our societies activities and just obvious it isn't sustainable and even in the short term in many parts of our of what we do in our culture and so 
looking for answers and looking for alternatives and looking for ways that honor uh, all of our needs and honor the planet we're on. But really, uh, all of our crises are pushing us to that quest right now, because if we don't find the answers to that, we're clearly going to live in a really degraded planet for however long we last. So many things pushing us to change. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's bottom line is, I think, to recognize our spiritual nature and what we are here for. And we see some people, you know, at the individual level experiencing that, doing their own transition in their lives to a more sustainable lifestyle, in a life where they value what's more, what are their priorities. So we see that happening at the individual level, but I think we need also to make that happen at collective level. So societies have been very much organized and competing around, you know, economic production, economic growth. And I think we need to recognize that that's only a mean. It's not an, it cannot be an end in itself. And the end should be more, not about having, but about being, as the Earth Charter uh, said 20 years ago. So I'm building on that. What could be policy agenda, how we can organize very concretely in different sectors and all of that based on real examples already happening to support being instead of having. And because being is really our true nature, is a relational nature, is to be I feel connected with one another, with nature. I think through this process, so it's more and more uh, recognized, including by science, as a very important part, right? The roots of our problems, you know, in our cultures, in our mindsets, heart sets. And that's really what is needed now. We could, by, you know, focusing more on being, we can make this shift of consciousness that we, as you said. Yeah, I'd love to get into the specifics in each part of our society as to what that looks like. But one of the things that I'm struck by as you speak is that the old model of spirituality, if you go back a thousand years, if you go even 500 years, certainly more than a thousand years, that spirituality meant actually withdrawing from the world. There were the Desert Fathers in Christianity in the 300, 400s, and they left. They went into the desert. They lived in a cave. Famous mystics like Ramana Maharshi in India went and lived in, in a cave in the mountain of Arunachala in the Middle Ages. And even in recent times, people escaped into a convent, into a monastery, and they were spiritual there. And hopefully they were having peak experiences and hopefully they were communing with something larger than themselves. But it was done outside of the real world. And what now, I believe, is much more the direction that we need to go as a society is to have those experiences and then translate them into action in the actual world. So uh, bring them into our workplaces, bring them into our families, bring them into our teams, bring them into prisons, bring them to schools. And so I believe that modern spirituality is unlike ancient spirituality in that way and that we have those experiences and then we're called to go and do something. <laughs> Indeed, we are very special times at the moment. We know that these, often people, scientists say this decade we are in will shape Earth as we know it for centuries, right? So it's really time where, because we are threatened, survival is threatened, we are called to do this shift. And maybe because we are threatened, we may be able to do it. And, you know, I'm my living next to a Zen monastery in France of Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, who has coined the term engage Buddhism or more generally, you know, engage spirituality. And in his own life, the question, the first insight, the first question that came for him as a monk when he was young in Vietnam 
He was meditating in the monastery and there were bombs falling around in villages. It was, what would the Buddha do, you know? Should he stay meditating or should, because he will move by compassion to relieve the suffering of others? So I think, you know, all true, when we connect with our true spiritual nature, we are naturally led to do something because it's so important what's going on right now for the future of humanity, for the future of the earth. I think more and more uh, spiritual leaders are converging into, hey, we need to do something and we need to redefine really our individual and collective lives towards a higher purpose. Absolutely. And as we connect what we're doing to that higher purpose, what we are doing is bound to shift, is bound to change and driven by those values of connection that we're experiencing in our spiritual lives we're going to be doing very different things in the outer life. So the doing you do when you're rooted in being is very different from the doing you do when you are just focused on the outer world. We're going to go to a break right now. We'll be right back after a short break. My name is Dawson Church. You're listening to High Energy Health. For more on Thomas's book and his work, go to his website, politicsofbeing.com. We'll be right back after a break. Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. I am so glad you're here. You're taking care of your well-being. You're filling your mind with great, inspiring ideas. And you are doing things like watching the most depressing news story. There's a fun word that popped up in the vocabulary a few years ago called doom scrolling. You scroll from one doom-laden story to the other. And there are people who do this and spend a lot of time doing this. And so you are doing the opposite right now. You are filling your mind and making space in your life for wisdom, for inspiration, for something beyond the ordinary and something that can fill your life with great ideas inspiration, and well-being. And I really congratulate you for that. And I invite you to join me every week on High Energy Health. We just have a, an amazing collection of guests and themes. For more on Thomas's work, please go to his website, Politics of Being. That's also the title of his new book, Politics of Being. Let's go to politicsofbeing.com. You can get an excerpt from the book there, as well as read the reviews and get it at various booksellers. So I encourage you to think about what you are going to actually do to operationalize these ideas in the next segment and in your life in the next while. So Thomas, talk now for a moment to the person who is inspired by the idea. Maybe they have had those transcendent experiences that you had in Mexico. Maybe they've had that glimpse of heaven. The students talk about maybe they're having these elevated experiences daily in meditation. What's the first thing they do to start to grapple with the expression of that being in the outside world? So I think what comes naturally when you... Uh experience that kind of different connection to the world is, you know, a sense of, uh, of being in service, right? And especially as we recognize these are very special times, as you were saying. So, and you're mentioning, you know, people should cultivate good uh, seeds in themselves, right? Somehow. And it's exactly uh, what I'm proposing with the politics of being. How can we organize society so that we can cultivate the highest human values? And the good news also is that there are now science, there is a happiness science that can tell us, you know, how do we organize societies for that? There is a more and more a science on love, empathy, and compassion 
tell us, for example, how important the youngest age to ensure development of secure attachment within children. So how can, you know, through parental leave policy, for example, how can we support that parenting programs, etc.? There is a science of peace, how we can cultivate peace, you know, more consciously, more proactively in our societies, etc. In, in the book, I have a chapter on all these values and mindfulness on life, you know, how can we, how should we organize our societies like how nature itself works, a science of complex systemic thinking. So for all of that, I've seen these are to me the, the seeds of the politics of being. Uh, around all these values, you have now communities doing best in social change, political change initiatives, and you have also the science. So we have everything that we need to start to consciously design our societies or institutions in a way that help us individually cultivate all these human values. And, you know, that's what you know, all the philosophers have said from uh, Confucius to uh, Aristotle, you know, the purpose of the good society or the good state should be to help their members cultivate their virtues. And what the science tells us now is that we are doing just the contrary, usually, because we are run by this cultural narrative of separation. And we tend to assume that we are all uh, selfish, you know, like uh, in uh, economic thinking, we're, we're all considered about everybody is supposed to pursue his own material self-interest. And because we assume that, then we create institution that makes people behave like that. So we really need to change this culture and how it shows up in the world. If you were to pick a country or a region that is modeling that more effectively than most, because as I listen to your words and think about the United Kingdom, think about the U.S. where I live now, you would not point to us as a model of those kinds of values. Like, you know, occasionally we have some piece of really compassionate and effective legislation, and it's not as though there's nothing hopeful happening. I mean, there is, especially at the local level, local governments in the U.S., but there's also a lot of legislation and just thinking, social thinking that is still based on that separation, is still based on that idea of, of individual well-being, really doesn't look at collaborative effects of what we're doing. So if you were to point to a country or point to a region that it has begun to function this way, who's closest now? Well, I would say the, probably the European Nordic countries, you know, Sweden, Norway, Finland, Iceland, they uh, come up as the um, the happier country in the world, but also the most were the ones who perform better in many social indicators. And they are also often considered as the most advanced uh, culturally in terms of their values. Some people call them, and they have many of these countries have now committed to a, a strongly to a well-being agenda, informing how they approach, you know, all their policies. They have also been called partnership society versus what we can call domination, cultures of domination. There are cultures of partnership, very caring. And you see that in how they organize, you know, whether in their education system, you know, for example, the, the Finnish education system is often pointed as an example for the world. And it's very much embody what I call an education for being, right? Where they focus on personal learning paths, where the teacher is here to, to support someone in his own learning path. They develop cooperative learning. So instead of fostering competition, pupils help each other to learn. Yeah, a lot are they learn by topics so that they can see things in a more integrated way rather than separated into different disciplines or 
that's face fosters systemic thinking. The way they also their uh, justice system is very much restorative. So they, they are trying to heal what has happened and be able to reintegrate the offenders in society and their prisons. You know, you see a prison in, in some of these countries. It often looks like a house. It's very different from what it looks in, in the US. So they have all kind of policies that, you know, and all kind of social policies, because also they, these are countries that are much more, uh, they are ones of the more egalitarian countries in the world. And uh, that has been shown by science to influence a lot, you know, because it makes a, a social fabric much healthier and they have much less social problems. So I think there could be, and they have also political culture, which is much more about consensus rather than polarization. So I think they are uh, quite well advanced into these uh, these agendas. Yeah, it's great to be able to point to actual examples like that, because often the criticism of ideas like the ones you're proposing are that, well, that's okay in academia, that's okay as a theory, but how could that possibly work in practice? And those Nordic countries have, have shown that it can and does work in practice. And not only that, they've shown that it's economically viable. If you look at the balance sheets of those countries and their budgets, you'll find that, generally speaking, they are in surplus, their, their balance sheets are in surplus, their budgets are in balance, and they're able to afford these social services and they're able to do it sustainably and economically. So the economic results also have been positive and be able to actually point to those examples and say, hey, this isn't just theory. If we live the politics of being, if we design our societies this way on a big scale, then these are the effects and here's what it looks like. And not just for a year or two, these are long running, you know, half a century or longer social experiments that are really successful. So I like that we have those examples to point to. We're going to go to a break right now, but please stay tuned for more on Thomas's work and his new book, The Politics of Being, go to his website, politicsofbeing.com. Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. My name is Dawson Church. Each week on the show, I bring you interesting ideas and ones you can apply for your own life and health and well-being. So thanks for joining me here. Make High Energy Health part of your weekly routine. For more on Thomas's work and his new book, The Politics of Being, go to the website politicsofbeing.com. There you'll find a downloadable chapter and a lot, a wealth of information and materials. So, Thomas, we know that it's possible from these examples like Nordic countries for societies to organize themselves this way and for it to be successful at the level of the individual, at the level of the company and organization, and at the level of the whole society and sustainability in terms of both resources and money. And what can we do where we are, wherever people are listening from, to start help nudge at least the conversation in our society in, in that direction? would be great so to read my book and pass the message that this is indeed feasible and this is actually the better answer to the situation we are in. So just starting to recognize, you know, what problems I think in our cultures, in our, in our minds, in our hearts, and show that a different vision of progress is needed and can be very convincing because actually science shows that, you know, we could be much better and take better care 
of the world around us at the same time. It actually rather goes together. So I think right now, you know, a lot of people are wondering, you know, about the future that because of the environmental degradation, we will have also much more, we'll have lives that would be much more difficult. And, you know, there's uh, some truth in that. But to show that there's a different way to look at what your priorities, yeah, maybe or we need to have a little bit more simple life from a material point of view. But science tells us that it is not at all, should not impede us to live much better while, and this, we are much better inside, we will take more care of our planet and of one another. You know, having a more simple life is a really good blanket prescription because it isn't specific, it's general, and it is an expression of values as well. And I just tell you from having been through a simplification process myself over the last decade, that when you don't have to worry about all that stuff, that you're generally much better off and you can focus on what really counts. I have a friend and he showed up for a, a workshop recently and he was wearing a t-shirt that said experiences, the word experiences, and a line, and then the word below it, things. I was looking at that thinking, what does that mean? I, I realized, okay, experiences over things. <laughs> and this, this man actually is a very wealthy man, a very influential man. And I realized that so many of my friends are, they, you know, they have things and they're okay with things, but what they really are seeking is experiences. And if we are having a rich sequence of experiences in our lives, both inner experiences and social experiences, experiences with nature, experiences with other creatures, it is so powerful. And again, that nurtures our being. And definitely, yeah. The thing is that we have been made often a bit insecure towards our material livelihoods and also made to desire always more things. And the research are clear, this is not very conducive to happiness. So how can we develop the conditions in societies for people to be have more fulfilling lives? That means also uh, more social justice so that everyone feels secure about uh, their basic needs. And that should be a priority in the politics of being so that we can uh, then, as may, you see many people, people who have secured this, they know that's not really what is fulfilling for them. Then the life is about being, is about experiences. It's about having a purpose, offering uh, our gifts to the world. So that's how we, uh, you know, if we can shift that logic, we can really, you know, allow people to flourish and then they will take better care of the world around them. Yeah, and there is evidence showing that that individual flourishing results in different actions. And if people are flourishing, if their spiritual lives are flourishing, if their emotional lives are flourishing, they're much less likely to do things that are degrading to the environment. And this is a very interesting link that we we're seeing right now. Thomas, I'm also doing a fun set of research projects. I've been researching, spent about 20 years researching PTSD. I spent about five years researching meditation. And now I'm researching in a series of studies what happens to productivity when you're in those elevated states. And studies of mine that aren't published yet, but our raw data is showing that productivity increases by over 25% if you are in those states. So your individual flourishing results in you being a far more effective person in the world. And again, one far more likely to be littering, failing to recycle, doing all the things that, that are contributing to all the problem. And you're far more likely to do things that are, are part of the solution. So it's interesting how personal and social flourishing are actually two sides of the same coin. Yeah, that's the way out of the mess we are in. 
mean, you know, a famous scientist said, human flourishing is good for people and societies. So, you know, it really can reconcile the individuals and societies where the paradigm of having, you know, is not good for societies. Usually people, you know, are grasping, you know, more things and that creates a lot of problems at the social level. If we move to the, the paradigm of being, we can have, that can work for everyone. Yes, absolutely. The paradigm of being. And so what I want to invite you to do as you're listening to Thomas is just be doing some reflection over here, maybe taking some notes. And where in your life can you shift to simplicity? Where in your life can you shift to being? How much time are you making for being in your life? If you have five minutes to spare, if you have a, a spot in your day that isn't filled, what are you doing with it? Are you packing it with stuff to do? Are you thinking furiously? Are you in your head? Or are you giving yourself that time to just breathe, be in nature, connect, with other people, be in your heart, drop into your heart. That's a powerful practice by itself. It's simply focus on speaking from the heart, being in the heart, acting from the heart. So I want to challenge you as you're listening to Thomas here about how you can make this a reality in your life. What can you do? How can you shift the way you run your life to bring in being and bring in experiences? And the second question I want to have you, you reflect on is that one of simplicity. Where could you simplify? And would you lack anything if you did simplify, if you went down from eight choices to three choices, you wouldn't have those five items, but might be happier not managing so much stuff. So I really want you to be chewing on these questions as Thomas is, is challenging us here, making notes and applying this to your life. I can just tell you from experience that you're likely to feel much happier when you don't have as much stuff. You reduce your amount of stuff, focus on being, focus on experiences, focus on the quality of your experience rather than the things. And the, the chances are good. You're going to feel much better and more at peace. So take this as a challenge right now. What can you eliminate? What can you live without? What can you, you shift into that column of being rather than doing and see the ways you can apply this in your life. We're going to go to a break right now. You're listening to High Energy Health and you'll find lots of ideas about all of the above in Thomas's new book, The Politics of Being and his website, politicsofbeing.com. Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. I'm delighted you're here. And as you listen to the show, as you participate in this community, you're going to find yourself full of ideas, full of vision, full of possibilities, and all kinds of new ways of making your life a lot better, a lot more meaningful. I urge you to apply these in your life and fill your life with the inspiration and wisdom you'll find on this show. For more on Thomas's work and his new book, Go to his website, Politics of Being. Know the just Politics of Being. The book is The Politics of Being. The website's politicsofbeing.com. Thomas, let's go a little deeper into what you mean by the term being. How do you define that? Uh, good question. I have tried to come with a very simple definition. It's about being, is about becoming who we are, the best version of ourselves. So becoming who we are is a bit more subjective. And we know that, you know, modern societies, uh, sociologists have shown that there's a more emphasis, more and more on self-expression. And the best version of ourselves is something that can be a bit more objective. You know, are you a good human being with uh, good values and virtues for societies? And, uh, and the two come together because of our spiritual nature of oneness, unity, 
consciousness, interbeing, as we as we become more ourselves, we become also a better human being. Powerful. And so just let's imagine for a moment that many of the things in all the solutions you're proposing in the book are enacted, they happen, They that your book is part of the whole conversation change we're having in society, and the world moves in this direction over the next 10, 20 years. What does that world look like, say by 2040, that's different from the way the world would look like without those values being implemented and operationalized in our societies? That's completely different. I think the, the greater hope is that all the policies that I'm proposing and in many sectors, they are all being implemented in different countries. So it's very possible. It's just about putting them together as a new agenda for progress. And there is no doubt. The good news is that there is no doubt that if we do all of this, we will have a completely different society that would have shifted completely their priorities, their attention, their ways of living into something that is much much more fulfilling like we would and i think if we have only this simple insight that you know some people have at the individual level if we're able to bring this insight at the collective level that at the end we should focus on human values we should focus on human growth connections with oneself with each other with nature we will co-create something that you know the next 20 years is almost difficult to describe already but it could be just the beginning if we start to walk that path in that direction so i think we would be much more connecting to with our real needs as human beings or two that are really fulfilling in terms of connection as i said and you know children would learn that from a young age and we will make sure that also they receive good conditions for them to grow in their families and when they go to work it will be a work that is fulfilling when they are empowered and that has meaning to terms of being in service for the world when they will have some how they would approach their health will be also completely uh, differently looking more you know at the basis of you were mentioning at the beginning in terms of our emotions in terms of our even you know even as a as a soul sometimes you know or journey as a soul uh, what's happening inside and that create these problems in our bodies and yeah we will we will also be have a completely different political systems which we which would be much less polarized but allow people of goodwill to come together and look at things as they are and not you know framed by ideologies political parties etc so we'll have people much more involved in the making of decision making and and really looking with fresh eyes as citizens into how we can improve our our life conditions we'll have an economy that will secure for everyone their basic needs and would reduce considerably inequalities because we would be aware that they are so negative to our social cohesion at the end they affect negatively each of us etc etc so all the aspects of our life should be become an opportunity for being for cultivating you know these human qualities wow what a vision that all aspects of our lives individually and collectively would be a way of cultivating a, a place to cultivate those values and those practices that is such an inspiring vision and i'm so grateful that so many people are thinking about this and working on this now i know i look at positive news stories every day and there is so many initiatives direction that are happening right now it's just very inspiring to me to see everything going on in our world that is being done by people by companies by organizations by governments when you start to look for the good news 
it's all over the place. And it's remarkable how many enlightened initiatives there are going on right now. Thomas, I'm so grateful for you, for your work, for this grand vision that you're sharing with us in the politics of being. And I totally love that vision of the future that you painted for us there. I think we all can get behind that. And I think more importantly, people of every single ideology can get behind that. Every country can get behind that. Every group can get behind that. None of these are controversial ideas. Uh, of course, how we get there is really up to us. But again, you're giving us that reference point of being as the frame to, which to see this. So I'm so grateful for you and your work. And again, I just want to mention your website, politicsofbeing.com for the book and more on what you're doing. And I'm just thrilled that you are articulating this so clearly and being a leader in this regard. Thank you. Thank you, Nelson. It's been a pleasure to, to be with you. Yeah, real delight. And please join us next week and every week for another episode of High Energy Health. I'm Dawson Church. I'm signing off for now. But in the meantime, be healthy, be happy, love yourself, and just fill your days with positivity. Thank you. Thank you.